From Goldman Sachs Research, this is Allison Nathan. Welcome to Top of Mind, a podcast that explores macroeconomic issues on the minds of our clients. In this episode, we're focusing on the recent surge of government deficits and debt levels around the world as governments attempt to ease the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. To give you a sense of just how large that debt could become, we expect debt to GDP ratios in developed markets to match levels last seen during World War II, and in emerging markets, we expect them to rise to their highest levels ever. This surge in public debt raises a lot of questions. Who will finance it? Will it force a market repricing or even severe market dislocations where debt dynamics look particularly unsustainable? Even if material market disruptions don't occur, will such indebtedness lead to a growth or inflation problem down the road? And would greater use of negative rates, which seems to be the topic du jour for central banks, help avoid any of these risks? At the same time, while public debt concerns are a key focus, whether private sector debt issues lead to a wave of corporate defaults and bankruptcies that could derail the economic recovery is also a big worry. Given all of these questions and concerns, how disruptive the recent dramatic shift in debt dynamics might be for markets and the economy is clearly top of mind. To help answer these questions, we turn to Kenneth Rogoff, Harvard professor and former chief economist at the IMF, as well as our chief economist, Jan Hatzius. Both agree that the sharp rise in deficits and debt levels to support growth is absolutely warranted today, given the magnitude of the economic challenges we're facing. To start, here's Rogoff's take on that. Obviously, governments have taken many unprecedented steps to support their economies throughout this crisis, and we have seen a very large increase in public debt as a result. Do you think that this spending and this increase in debt is appropriate at this time? Absolutely. We're looking at the worst natural catastrophe in generations, probably since the Spanish influenza And the whole point of having a strong balance sheet is to be able to use debt aggressively when you're faced with a full-on crisis. And this is one where I would have no problem if they did the same again twice over if we get out of this in one piece. But you've argued that debt-to-GDP ratios 90% or higher for developed economies is generally associated with growth rates and something to be somewhat concerned about. Do you still think that's the case? So I would have to say my views have been misstated by polemicists. In our paper, Carmen Reinhardt and I have created a new data set on debt. We group debt from all advanced economies into buckets of below 30%, below 60%, below 90%, and above 90%. And we observe that there is a correlation between growth and debt above 90% and that you got a slightly lower average growth. We very carefully clarified that having your debt go from 89 to 90% no more meant you were going to have a big change than if your cholesterol level went from 199 to 200 or that you drove at 56 miles an hour instead of 55 miles an hour. And we're very careful about attributing causation. That said, there's now been a substantial academic literature over the last 10 years that thoroughly supports 
the idea that there is this correlation between high debt and lower growth. The causation remains debated, although other authors show that when you have a recession or a crisis, countries with high debt are more reluctant to support the economy. We're also very careful to say different countries are different. The United States is an entirely different position than Italy. But the main point is gains right now to borrowing are just tremendous. And the growth implications to not borrowing would be a lot greater than any growth implications to borrowing. We're in a situation where the other risks to structural growth are massive. We are looking at output being down by who knows what the real number is. We may never know, but certainly 25% across the world. And I don't see the U.S. and global economy coming back to 2019 levels for perhaps five years. That depends a lot on how the pandemic unfolds. But worrying about a quarter percent of growth here or there over longer-term future periods is really not the issue right now. You should use debt when there's a big payoff. There's a very big payoff right now. And I'm not terribly concerned about the longer-term costs. And here's our chief economist, Jan's take. What the government is basically doing is stepping into the breach that the private sector has left. Private sector is pulling back very hard. Demand is weak. Economic activity is weak. And in that environment, for the government to run extremely large deficits, I think, is not inflationary. It's not, I think, a reason to worry about a debt crisis, at least in an economy like the US or the UK or Japan or other advanced economies that have floating exchange rates and their own central bank. And it's certainly not a reason to worry about a growth drag. I can see the correlation, but the causation could easily go the other way. And it's hard for me to see how it would go from larger deficits to weaker growth. Certainly in the short term, all else equal, you run a bigger deficit, you deliver more stimulus to the economy. However, Rogoff emphasized that high deficits and debt levels are nevertheless not a free lunch, even with today's low interest rates. And markets are going too far in expecting that real rates and inflation will never rise. Do you share views by Blanchard and others that these very low interest rates basically are a reason to be less concerned about the implications of debt? So Blanchard's point seems to be that when the interest rate is below the growth rate, you can have a big bulge in borrowing and then over time sit back and let the debt-GDP ratio fall. But if you look historically it's actually extremely common for the interest rate to be less than the growth rate. The paper by Paulo Maro at the IMF finds it happens more than half the time in advanced economies over the past 200 years. And it's not particularly a predictor that your position's totally safe. And if you borrow very short term, you're vulnerable to interest rates going up. 
So the fact we should borrow doesn't mean it's a free lunch. It doesn't mean taxes will never have to go up. And a very important point is that the market debt, the headline debt that you see, really represents just a sliver of the obligations of the modern welfare state, with pensions being very important. So Blanchard, we had a debate on this at the IMF, suggested that Italy could borrow a lot more, market should be fine with that. That may be true, but as high as Italy's debt is, I think it's running at 135% of GDP, it's paying out 16% of GDP, not of government spending, 16% of GDP in publicly provided pensions right now. So that swamps its debt position. And certainly for the United States, Social Security alone swamps debt. I would say the market-based debt should be looked at as senior debt. The Social Security debt should be looked at as junior debt. So when the market-based debt goes up, it isn't necessarily a free lunch. You're just not seeing the risk passed on to other parts of the government's portfolio because there's no market in them. So I think we should be borrowing in this situation because we can. That said, of course it's not desirable to have debt go up. Of course it's not a free lunch. I think that view is just wrong. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be buying lunch for everybody right now. It also sounds like you're generally not that concerned about the likelihood of inflation, which, as we all know, can be an outcome of indebtedness. In the near term, the odds are greater that we're in a deflationary environment because my view is the economy is still turning for the worse. There are a number of market commentators saying debt is high, it has to end in inflation. But that's not true as long as interest rates stay very low because there are no pressures. There would be no reason to do that. However, if you look over the course of history, stuff happens. And people think that any bad shock is going to drive down interest rates, and they'll find out they're wrong. Stuff can happen that goes the other way, and that would create a lot of pressure. Even if there were pressure on real interest rates, say, rising a couple percent over a two- or three-year period, that would put a lot of pressure. Then inflation would be in the conversation. So markets don't believe there's any chance of inflation being much higher in five years or interest rates being much higher in five years. And I think that view is wrong. But both Rogoff and Hotsius think the market is right to worry about debt dynamics in the euro area. Here's Jan. Do you think that there is a chance that we see another euro area crisis off the back of this? I am concerned that we could at least see enough euro area crisis concern that you could see a sizable further increase in peripheral spreads. The southern countries in the euro area are going through extremely deep recessions and they're having to spend a lot. They're running extremely large deficits and there is a lot of uncertainty about how far the ECB would go in helping them and how far Europe more broadly would go in helping them. From an economic perspective, there isn't really a true limit on the central bank's ability to finance large expansions in government spending and in government deficits. 
but the political constraints are there, and the political constraints have to do, of course, with the concern in Germany that financing large deficits in the periphery and in Italy in particular is going to encourage irresponsible fiscal policy and ultimately leaves Germany on the hook for footing the bill. I don't agree with that view, but I think it's clearly the reality. And there is a significant amount of concern that the decision by the German Constitutional Court a few weeks ago may be a signal that Germany would push back against, for example, an increase in the size of this pandemic asset purchase program. And so it's made our expectation that we'll see an expansion of that program at the June ACB meeting, a closer call. That said, with the onslaught of the COVID crisis, there has definitely been more of a sense of European solidarity than there had been in many years. And here's Rogoff. The euro cannot easily withstand these two and three standard deviation shocks. And there's huge anger in Italy. There's anger in Germany. This is not a good moment for the euro. It's going to go one of two ways. One way is that there's greater integration. They issue a corona bond or a euro bond, have some form of mutualization beyond the ECB. And the other possibility is that we really see an unraveling. It's hard to know. The Europeans have shown to rise to the occasion in the past, but we're at the early stages of this. And it's hard to know if it lasts another couple of years, how things will go. Italy is in dire straits. It needs to be able to borrow a lot of money within the euro framework. It's not even allowed to, and they've been given some reprieve on that. But it's not 100% clear how far the markets will go there. Of course, it's a fragile situation. And much more generally, 2008 had an enormous effect on politics. Surely, this is going to be bigger. Surely, it's going to be more unpredictable. And how the euro plays out is one feature of that. And as concerned as Rogoff and Hotsies are about the euro area, they seem even more concerned about debt dynamics in emerging markets, with Rogoff calling the current situation the most troubling since the 1930s. I think we're looking at a situation for emerging markets that's unparalleled since the 1930s. The collapse in commodity prices, the collapse in global trade, very likely deglobalization. Good chance that China's growth is going to be more like 3% the next 10 years than the kind of fast pace that was taking commodity prices to new heights. They're facing COVID-19. So I think we're already going to see a number of frontier markets default. There's, of course, Argentina, but all of the energy exporters face a lot of problems. Do you take any comfort in the EM countries' debt 
positions to the extent that they have been borrowing more in local currency? Yes, they are in stronger positions. My view of this is it's not the currency of denomination. It's the court of jurisdiction. It's the fact that the local currency is adjudicated in home country courts. Greece was able to brutally treat its creditors and the debt adjudicated in Greek courts, whereas the debt adjudicated in London courts got paid in full. So that's been a good shift. In fact, I've argued for 30 years that EM should only be able to borrow in their own jurisdictions. But they have a lot of corporate debt that's not in local currency. And most EMs are not that diversified and are not really in a position to allow their corporations to just melt down. So, yes, but we're not looking at the 80s. We're not looking at the 1990s. We're not looking at the 2000s. We're looking at the 1930s here, and it's just hard to know what lies ahead. And he's not. Are you concerned about the prospect of EM debt crises in this environment, and could that derail the global economic recovery? EM economies, of course, are under a lot of pressure, depending partly on how bad the virus gets for them and partly on how much of a hit they take from other economies. On the virus, there's a ton of uncertainty in the advanced economies. There's even more uncertainty, I think, in the emerging economies. So that's a risk. And many emerging economies are highly vulnerable to the global economic cycle, either because they're very resource dependent or because they're very manufacturing dependent. And so the economic outlook for emerging economies is, in many cases, extremely difficult, although there's much more variation across the emerging world than there is across the advanced world. And there's, of course, a concern that that is also going to result in pressures on the financial system. We've seen large outflows of capital from emerging economies, especially in February and March. That has stabilized somewhat more recently, but the pressure is definitely still there. And it could certainly get worse again if the news flow and general market sentiment took another turn for the worse. Whether it would be something to derail a global economic recovery, I think that's less likely because most emerging economies are just not quite systemically important enough to generate a global crisis. China is probably the one real exception to that. And China so far seems to be on a reasonable path as far as the recovery from the virus is concerned. So it's concerning for emerging markets, but I don't think it's a major downside risk for the advanced economies or the world economy as a whole. As to whether negative rates in the U.S. could help these dynamics or the economic recovery more broadly, both Rogoff and Hatzius see a very low likelihood of the Fed shifting to them anytime soon. But Jan isn't convinced that such a shift would help the recovery much in any case, since the Fed would have to pursue them slowly. I think it's very unlikely that they're going to move to negative rates anytime soon. There was an FOMC meeting in October 2019 where every single FOMC participant said they didn't think it was an attractive policy option in a downside scenario, and every single one thought that other unconventional tools were preferable, meaning QE and forward guidance. And Chair Powell gave a recent speech 
that said nothing had changed in terms of the committee's views. Now, you can't completely rule out the possibility that they might change their mind if enough time passes and the economy stays weak, but I think it's a pretty low probability. The bond market at the moment is pricing in very slightly negative rates, a couple of basis points by kind of 2021. That doesn't seem like a crazy place to be because if they were to go negative, they probably wouldn't just go negative by 10 basis points. So if you think that rate hikes are off the table for the foreseeable future, I think pricing in a small option on negative rates might be reasonable. But I think there's a real limit to that because it seems pretty unlikely. But if we don't see the recovery that we expect, if we get second waves, if there are other factors that are leading to a worse scenario than we're expecting, do you think that we should be considering negative rates? What's your view on it? My view is that it probably doesn't make a huge difference, partly because if you move into negative rates, it has to be a very slow move because if you're doing this for the first time, you don't really know what the side effects are. No policymaker that I know would be comfortable just cutting in steps of 50 basis points into negative territory, and I wouldn't advise that. So you'd have to kind of inch your way in, as the ECB did, for example, and that's unlikely to have a large positive effect on the economy. But it has a large negative effect. I'm not convinced of that necessarily, but I think the potential upside of going into negative territory is probably quite small. Whereas with QE, you don't have to proceed cautiously. We've had large bouts of QE, and we know how that works. And you could certainly put on additional large programs, and I wouldn't really worry that you'd be doing a huge amount of damage. So the upside of expanding asset purchases or further financing large government deficits that are ultimately used to shore up aggregate demand directly seems a lot bigger. Rogoff, for his part, remains an ardent supporter of deeply negative rates, which he argues would provide a powerful boost to the economy without the feared negative consequences for banks or savers, as long as central banks prevent cash hoarding among financial institutions. I've argued for a very long time that if we live in this world with very low neutral real interest rates and very low inflation, you have to have the option of deeply negative rates in order to deal with a massive crisis like a pandemic, like a cyber war. You have to have that option on the table. It is the whatever-it-takes instrument. It's the bazooka. It's the instrument that central banks need in this situation of very low inflation, deeply negative rates would have quite a dramatic effect. This would raise inflation, it would raise long-term interest rates, it would raise housing prices, it would raise equity prices. The bank and financial industry has been very much against this because they believe it's bad for their profits. I think it would not be. And as long as you dealt with cash hoarding and you really only need to stop big financial firms, pension funds, insurance companies from hoarding billions, tens of billions of dollars. You don't care about somebody hoarding a million dollars. It's not the issue. 
the Fed had said, well, we don't want to hear about it because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But it is broke now, and they'll be thinking about it. Nothing's going to happen soon. It's just too big a step. But my forecast would be that we have a long, painful road to recovery here, and negative interest rates would be a piece of dealing with it. Finally, while our focus is on public sector debt concerns, we also wanted to touch on a key private sector debt worry right now, a potential wave of corporate bankruptcies that could cause more lasting scarring to the economy. For that, we turn to David Skeel, professor at the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School. He expects more corporate bankruptcies than what we saw after the global financial crisis. Do you expect a corporate bankruptcy wave in the coming months? I do expect there to be at least some wave. There's not always a bankruptcy wave after the bursting of the dot-com bubble. There was very little effect on business bankruptcy filings. After the Great Recession, they essentially doubled. I would be surprised if they don't go up lots more than that this go-round, because we basically shut down the economy for several months, and there are lots of businesses that have very little extra cash, small businesses in particular, and if you shut them down for a month, even if they're getting some support from Washington, there's a very good chance they're not going to come back without bankruptcy kind of help. There also were lots of firms that had a significant amount of debt before the coronavirus crisis. And so this is just the kind of hiccup that you would expect to push many of them over the edge. And we've already started to see some of that happening. We've seen JCPenney and a number of other companies that were precarious before the coronavirus crisis toppling towards bankruptcy. When should we expect to see bankruptcies become more visible? In my experience, it's usually pretty close to the time of the recession. It tends to be a few months rather than a year with businesses. And with consumers, it comes even more quickly. The key variable for consumer bankruptcy filings is the unemployment rate. Bankruptcy filings tend to go up within two or three months of a jump in the unemployment rate. What do you look at to gauge the amount of bankruptcies? So there are a couple different ways one could answer that question. Quantitatively, there are various places that have filing numbers. I personally tend to go to the American Bankruptcy Institute, which is a nonprofit organization, nonpartisan, which has a lot of very good data. A lot of the data is monthly, quarterly, yearly, so it's not up to the minute, but there's some of that as well. So I go there from an anecdotal perspective. I look at things like, are businesses making extraordinary loans? Are they drawing on lines of credit? And that's what we've been seeing for the past few months. And then you look for things like, have firms hired bankruptcy attorneys? There's a relatively small number of firms that handle a disproportionate amount of the big cases. When you learn that a business has hired one of them, obviously that's a pretty strong signal. I'm on the Puerto Rico Oversight Board and we have a bunch of bankruptcy lawyers and financial advisors advising us. Obviously it's a huge, huge case. It used to be the main show in town without lots else going on. That is not true right now. Firms are being deluged with other cases. So from that anecdotal perspective, everything seems to be consistent with the bankruptcy wave. 
From a slightly broader perspective, it's a little bit more mixed. So if you look at what's happening with small business funding from Washington, the first $350 billion of the Paycheck Protection Program under the CARES Act was taken up really quickly. It's going more slowly now. That doesn't necessarily mean that businesses don't need the money. There's some other reasons for that as well. But a lot of money has gone out the door. There is kind of mixed evidence about whether mid-sized businesses have access to the funding they need or not. If you look to bigger firms so far, at least in terms of having access to funding, either outside of bankruptcy or inside of bankruptcy, there does appear to be a fair amount of funding there. There are a lot of private equity firms and hedge funds that have money. So it's a very complicated picture right now. It's really hard to tell whether things are falling apart or whether people like me who have been warning about a bankruptcy wave are overstating the case. If we do see the bankruptcy wave that Skeel expects, he's concerned that bankruptcy court congestion could lead to more small business liquidations as well as longer and costlier bankruptcies for large firms than normal. I'm something of an evangelist for the American bankruptcy system. The American bankruptcy system is designed to give viable businesses that run into financial distress an opportunity to fix their financial problems and have another go at it. It is designed to facilitate reorganization where reorganization is a realistic option For decades, the American bankruptcy system was unique in the world in that regard. I would distill its genius to two simple elements of our bankruptcy laws. One is they leave the managers of a company that files for bankruptcy in charge. So the managers continue to run the business. It is business as usual to the extent possible. The other key factor in American bankruptcy law is that it facilitates the borrowing of money in bankruptcy. And so when a firm files for bankruptcy in the United States, ordinarily that doesn't mean they've reached the end of the line. It means that they're going to renegotiate their obligations and come back out again. But the particular limitation that I'm concerned about now is that the system works very differently when the courts are congested than it works when they're not congested. Even under the best of circumstances, most small businesses that file for bankruptcy don't actually reorganize. So if you have a bankruptcy wave, as I expect, small corporations are even more likely to liquidate. About two-thirds of small businesses liquidate under ordinary circumstances gets even bigger if the court is congested. With large firms, they do still reorganize, but the reorganization process tends to take longer and it tends to be much more costly. And so what you would worry about if we have a bankruptcy wave is lots of liquidations of small businesses, lots of big corporations wallowing in bankruptcy longer than you want them in bankruptcy, which can be very disruptive. Goldman Sachs economists, for their part, confirm a moderate increase in U.S. bankruptcy indicators so far and see signals of more bankruptcies ahead. All that and the continuing developments around the pandemic and its impact on debt sustainability and the global economy more broadly will remain top of mind. 
I'll leave it there for now. We wish you good health during this difficult time. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. I'm Allison Nathan. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind at Goldman Sachs, and I'll see you next time. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.